Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Our topic today is the history and reemergence of race science. And stick around after the interview. Katie Love is back with part two of our four-part series on how rigorous science and detective work can provide grounds to make polluters pay. Bear with me while I get a little philosophical. Maybe you've heard people discussing, quote, social constructs at some point. A social construct is something that we, in a society, agree on to be a rule, even if it's not based on anything real. Baby boys wear blue and girls wear pink. That's a social construct. Cats are pets and pigs are food. That's another one. What's challenging about social constructs like money or international borders is that they often feel so real and shape our experiences so powerfully that it's hard to imagine that we made it up. But it's still important to understand how these constructs affect our lives. So today we're discussing the social construct of race, which for centuries has been used to justify atrocities like slavery, colonialism, segregation, and countless other injustices. Race science started as the claim that biological differences could be used to classify humans into categories. But as today's guest succinctly puts it, it was always nonsense. Angela Saini is a science journalist and author of Superior, The Return of Race Science. If you, like me, are dying to know how race science came to be, this is the episode for you. We talk about the popularity of race science through the years, the terrifying fact that racism exists in every level and aspect of society, including academia, and why, in the end, the reason race science has prevailed for so long is not actually about science, but politics. Angela, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Your most recent book, Superior, The Return of Race Science, takes an in-depth look at racist theories in science. And as the title suggests, this is something that has made somewhat of a comeback recently. But I'd like to start with the basics. What is race science and when did it emerge? Well, I think a lot of people imagine racial categories to have been eternal, that the way that we think about human difference now is the way that more or less people have always thought about it. And actually, nothing could be further from the truth. The categories we use now in society, number one, they vary depending on the country that you're in. But the categories that you see, for example, being used in the US, these big kind of white, black yellow, red, brown, um, originate from not that long ago. No, they're no more than a few hundred years old. And they were concocted around the time of the European Enlightenment by thinkers and naturalists who, as they were classifying the natural world, so flora and fauna, they looked at humans and said, can we classify humans in that same way? Now, these European thinkers, often they didn't have much exposure or understanding of how people elsewhere in the world lived or looked. 
Um, this wasn't a very scientific exercise in the way that we understand science to be done now. Um, so it was very arbitrary. There were some thinkers who thought there were a few races. There were others who thought there were hundreds or thousands of races. You can really divide people any way you want because, as we know now, of course, a human species is one race. We are one species. And although you can categorize people, for example, by height or weight or skin color or whatever you want, these are always fuzzy things. And the choice that you make with regards to classification is really a, a political and a social one or a cultural one. So these people were often informed by the social politics of their time. And of course, we're talking about upper class European male thinkers. And so the way that they thought about human difference was very much informed by the politics of colonialism, of slavery, of this idea that they themselves were superior to other groups of people, not just racially, but also in terms of gender and also in terms of class. So when we talk about race science, coming back to your question, or, or what is race, um, this is what it is. It is the exercise of trying to classify humanity in certain ways and the belief that there are meaningful differences between those categories once you have done that classification. And it was always nonsense. It was always arbitrary. <laughs> but of course, the way that these categories have been used for hundreds of years mean that they feel very real. They feel as real to us as other social constructs like money or democracy or you know the idea of the nation state. They viscerally affect how we live. So they feel real but race science itself was always bogus. It was always pseudoscientific. What does science actually tell us about race? Well, it depends on which period of time you're in. You know, if you were there 300 <laughs> years ago, then science would have told you that races do exist. You can divide people into certain ways and that there's a hierarchy between them. Even in the 19th century, this was a very popular mainstream notion. There were lots of scientists, mainstream scientists, in fact, I would argue most European scientists and American scientists at that time believed that there was some basis to assume that humans could be divided up into groups and that there were kind of profound physical and psychological differences between the groups that we were talking about, that possibly we weren't even one species, that we were subbreeds or subspecies. And this was used as a justification for so many of the kind of atrocities of the 19th and 20th centuries, whether you look at the Holocaust, whether you look at any other kind of genocide, uh, slavery, colonialism, imperialism, apartheid, segregation, many of these were justified by these, what at that time were considered scientific arguments around racial difference. Of course, we know better now but one of the questions I raise in Superior is how much better do we really know? Have we completely purged science of this idea that race is real or meaningful? And I would argue that we haven't. It's interesting because I think um, one thing that sort of adds to this confusion now is the way that we talk about DNA around these individual DNA tests well, I think DNA ancestry tests are an interesting case study here because I think more than any other type of technology in recent years, they have reinforced this idea that race must be real because if you're having these tests done and they come back and they tell you, you are so-and-so percent this and so-and-so percent that, how can they be analyzing your saliva, your DNA, and 
be telling you that then, then there must be some kind of genetic basis to to these racial categories but i think people forget a number of things firstly that what they are doing when they test your dna is not an ancestry test as such so they're not comparing your dna to your ancestors or relatives of your ancestors they are comparing it to other people who have had that test done now we know that human variation is not random of course it's not the case that if i have a baby i don't know what uh, you know i have no idea what its skin color or eye color will be i can you know you, our children look like us we pass on traits through generations of course and historically people have tended to live near their family then of course there is going to be some genetic fuzzy genetic similarity between families and communities it gets weaker and weaker the bigger you draw that circle so when you're getting to your kind of second cousins or third cousins your great great grandparents a genetic link gets weaker and weaker when you're talking about at the state level or nation level there may be some kind of fuzzy genetic commonality here but i have to assert very clearly that there is no gene that is present in all the members of one group and not in any other human being. There are no black genes, there are no white genes. There is no way that, for example, my DNA could be tested and they could say you are definitely of Indian origin. You talk in the book about Darwin in 1871, he published The Descent of Man and he, so he states that we have one common ancestor and we evolved from that slowly like all other life. And you point out that that could have solved the race debate, but but it didn't. So where did where did Darwin go wrong? Well, to be honest, we could have solved the race debate at any point if anyone had you know thought about the origins of these racial categories. They would have seen historically just how loose, meaningless, and arbitrary they were from the beginning. What happened in the 19th century was that many scientists were very heavily invested in this idea that racial differences were real, not least because the politics of the time demanded that they did. You know, this was the height of colonialism, the height of slavery. Um, there were abolitionist movements, and I should say that Darwin was an abolitionist himself. In fact, his family, his broader family, were very active in the abolitionist movement. And yet Darwin himself couldn't abandon his belief that there was still something tangible about race and that some races were inferior to others, that certain groups of people, certain uh, indigenous communities, for example, in parts of the world were doomed to die out because they were lower down the evolutionary ladder. I mean, this is the complexity of his legacy, I think, that we have to confront because I think we celebrate Darwin rightly, but at the same time, we have to understand the ideological frameworks within he was working, the political frameworks within which he was working and how racialized they really were and how racialized they were for so many scientists and thinkers at that time. This was part of the air that they breathed, these ideas, this, uh, this belief that it was justified to keep slaves or it was justified to for Europeans to colonize other countries that they considered less civilized. This was so entrenched an ideology in European thinking. And also it had been entrenched in the beginning in the European scientific project, in the establishments of science, that it still remains there now, that even now in the 21st century, you still see people thinking in these terms. 
You're making me think about when you talk about the journal, the Mankind Quarterly, that sounds like it was a fringe publication, but it still continues to play a role in race science today. It's still around, is that right? That's right. So the Mankind Quarterly, for those who aren't aware of it, is a journal that was founded uh, in the 1960s um, by a small group of academics and people on the margins of mainstream academia as well, who were not on board with the consensus around this idea that race was a social construct. So in the 1950s, UNESCO put out a series of statements affirming once and for all, through collaboration with scientists, anthropologists, policymakers all around the world, that race was a social construct. And by and large, most people were on board with this, but there were a small group of scientists who weren't, including some very mainstream scientists who weren't convinced that we were one species, for instance, that we all evolved together. There were some who thought that we evolved separately to have very different traits. And some of these scientists on the very fringes who were still committed, for example, to maintaining segregation in the United States, who saw a problem with racial mixing, what they termed at the time miscegenation. So this idea that different racial groups shouldn't be having children together because those children will be somehow genetically flawed in some way. And they got together and set up their own journal because, you know, mainstream journals wouldn't publish this kind of nonsense anymore. And that journal was called the Mankind Quarterly. So the writing in Mankind Quarterly, these are not peer-reviewed scientific papers, but this is some way of creating sort of a narrative framework to some way try to make race science legitimate. Yes, and I think what people need to remember um, is that racists aren't just those kind of ignorant thugs in the street. There are racists at every single level of society, and that includes academia. There are white supremacists within academia. And what the Mankind Quarterly aimed to do was give voice to those deeply racist elements within academia and outside academia, people on the fringes, and I have to say that its contributors these days tend to be on those very fringes. I mean, I don't think there are any reputable academics who still write for that publication, but I should say that's only very recently. There have been academics who have written for it at top universities around the world. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. Now let's get back to our interview. One thing that you said a minute ago, which is that there are racists in all walks of life in academia. And I think one of the things with science is that science is supposed to be objective and rational and without bias. And you give a lot of examples in the book of European white scientists trying to sort of retrofit archaeological finds to support white European supremacy. And I think an example that will really resonate with people is the Neanderthal makeover example. So can you talk about that a little bit? 
Well, I think this for me was illuminating. I traveled a number of times to Australia in the last couple of years and I read a wonderful book by Billy Griffiths. I think it's called Deep Time and it really looks at the history of archaeology within Australia. And what you see when you look at that history is how racist it is. There it was informed a lot by again the politics of that time, the 19th and 20th century politics. This belief that they were entering this terra nullius, this empty land, that the people who already lived there, the Aboriginal Australians, were doomed to die out, that they belonged to some kind of um, less evolved race, that they were lower down the evolutionary ladder. And what I also noticed over the last 10 years or so is there's been a lot of research done into Neanderthals and their connections to modern day humans. So for a long time, there was this belief that you know, we've known for a very long time about the existence of Neanderthals. And there was this belief that um, we did not mate with them. You know, this was a separate species that died out, that went extinct, uh, and we survived for some reason. And the fact of them dying out was used, you know, we use it in popular culture to describe someone stupid. You know, we use the word Neanderthal to describe someone who is, you know, an oafish male. (laughs) We use the word Neanderthal. And in fact, if you go to your dictionary, that, that definition is still there. But when Neanderthal bones was first discovered in Europe in, um, I think it's the end of the 19th century. One of the very first things scientists did was compare them to the bones of Aboriginal Australians, living Aboriginal Australians. And this was because, like I said, there was this belief that they they were both kind of lower down the evolutionary scale, that they were both doomed to die out, that both these, these were kind of different breeds of people that were doomed to die out. And that belief, of course, we have to remember, was the same one that drove racism in Australia, deep racism in Australia. One of the very first pieces of legislation to pass in Australia under its colonial government was the white Australia policy, which essentially tried to breed the colour out of Australians. It was cultural and physical genocide almost. It really destroyed living communities and I interviewed one woman in Australia who has Aboriginal Australian ancestry whose family were a product of this system and it's heartbreaking it's absolutely horrific to read and hear from living people about the absolutely despicable ways in which they were treated I think Australia and Australians are still coming to terms with that trying to atone and reckon with that devastating legacy. But we have to remember that at that time, science was supporting this idea. Science was supporting this idea that it was legitimate almost to have people, a group of people, a community, a culture die out under this belief that European civilization was superior. European people were biologically superior to these people. Now, let's fast forward to the 21st century. Over the last 10, 20 years, it's become clear that Neanderthals did mate with modern humans. In fact, there are people alive, uh, many of us alive today have a small proportion of Neanderthal DNA, if you want to think of it that way. So, you know, our very, very distant ancestors bred with Neanderthals. And in fact, it started to become clear that it was Europeans that might have the largest proportion of this Neanderthal (laughs) DNA in them. And no scientist, no living scientist 
of the last 20, 30 years would ever suggest that this meant that they changed the way they thought about Neanderthals. But when you look at scientific papers and when you look at popular culture and the phrases that they use to describe Neanderthals, it's remarkable how they changed in that time. When it became clear that Europeans had this close connection to Neanderthals, then suddenly people started talking about Neanderthals as being human just like us. This was one New York Times essay. They felt like us. They didn't die out because they were stupid. They died out for some other unfortunate reason. They, they suffered the same diseases. You know, drawing them into the human circle, forgetting that in the 19th century, they were used as a tool to push living human beings, Aboriginal Australians, out of the human circle. What do you see as a solution? Are there better or different scientific terms that we can use to talk about race so we stop conflating cultural, social, and national identity with biology? I do think language matters, but um, what we need to be careful of is using is when we change the language that we're not just using euphemisms, that we're not just doing the same thing but using different language to describe it. There's a wonderful academic called Lisa Gannett who writes about statistical racism, this idea that population geneticists in changing their language around race, not using the word race anymore but using the word population, for instance, are actually just, in a way, obscuring what they're actually doing, you know, which to an outside observer like me as a journalist, feels a lot like race science sometimes. <laughs> you know, it really does, but they use different language around it. And they won't, you know, very assiduously avoid use of the word race or racial differences, but essentially doing almost exactly the same thing. And then you have to wonder, then what are you doing? If it's not race science, but it looks exactly like race science, then what is it? And that's where I think we have to be careful. This isn't just about language. This is fundamentally about how we think about human difference, how we think about the species and the ways in which we divide up people. The fact that we divide people up at all, why do we even do that? And I think this is where we need to go back to because the project of dividing up people was this European Enlightenment project. It was part of that political belief that human differences went that far. So that's not to say that human variation shouldn't be studied. All I'm saying is that we need to think carefully about the ways in which we study it. It can't be as superficial as just changing the language. It has to be fundamental, I think. Right. Well, Angela, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. It's been really great talking to you. So thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now we're returning to our four-part series on how rigorous science and a little detective work can provide evidence to make polluters pay. This is part two. If you missed part one, you should definitely go back to episode 93 and listen. Katie explained how lawsuits against big tobacco proved that it's not legal for companies to lie about their products causing harm. Part two is how big oil took a page right from their playbook despite this. Here's Katie Love. Thanks, Colleen. I want to start by playing you a 30-second commercial from 1988. The video shows a fox running away from a predator and ending up safe in an artificial burrow. I promise this is relevant. On a moonlit California desert, a kit fox senses a prowling coyote. Caught in the dangerous open, she speeds to the edge of an oil field toward one of these curious mounds specially made for her by the people who work there. She shoots through a pipe too small for the coyote and into a cozy den that keeps her snug and safe. 
Do people really do these things just to help an endangered species make it through the night? People do. The last screen displays a Chevron logo. Yes, the massive fossil fuel company, Chevron. Who cares that they've contributed to making our planet uninhabitable? They love cute little foxes. Unfortunately, this one ad is nowhere near the worst of what fossil fuel companies have done to prop up their industry and lie to people about the harm they've caused. If I sound mad in this segment, it's because I am. It's impossible not to be mad about being lied to. It's impossible not to be mad about powerful people deliberately squandering our chances to stop climate change. Hey, Katie, chill out, you might say. How do we know that fossil fuel companies knew about climate change and lied about what they knew? Well, we have receipts. There are decades of memos and emails and strategy documents from fossil fuel companies and their trade associations. These documents have become public because they've been leaked, revealed through lawsuits, or disclosed using the Freedom of Information Act. In fact, there's so much evidence that I don't have time to tell you about all of it. Here are some highlights. The first time most oil company executives heard of global warming was at a symposium co-organized by the American Petroleum Institute, a trade association whose members include ExxonMobil, Shell, and Chevron. A top physicist warned of the heat-trapping potential of carbon dioxide emissions released by burning fossil fuels. He calculated that global temperatures would rise. He speculated that this could cause Arctic ice to melt and submerge major cities. The year was 1959. In the late 1970s, Exxon staff scientists concluded that continuing to burn fossil fuels would dangerously warm the planet. In 1982, Exxon management were given a document highlighting the need for, quote, major reductions in fossil fuel combustion, end quote, without which, quote, some potentially catastrophic events must be considered, end quote. A report from the fossil fuel company Shell in 1988 warns, quote, by the time global warming becomes detectable, it could be too late to take effective countermeasures to reduce the effects, end quote. Let's stay in 1988, when the front page of the New York Times read, global warming has begun, expert tells Senate. It seems to me like this year could have been a turning point. The science was settled. These companies knew about the harm they were causing, they could have invested their millions into renewable energy. They could have changed the world for the better. Instead, they lied. They wasted our time with cute commercials. They purposefully created doubt about whether science was right about global warming. They schemed to secretly pay scientists at prestigious institutions to conduct bogus research on climate change. They funded front groups to pressure politicians into voting against clean energy policies. The evidence for this is also overwhelming. So here's another highlight reel. Returning to 1988, a memo circulated at Exxon, clarifying that its position on climate change would be to, quote, emphasize the uncertainty and scientific conclusions regarding the potential enhanced greenhouse effect, end quote. Ten years later, the American Petroleum Institute circulated a memo laying out their plan to promote, quote unquote, uncertainties in climate science among the media, the public, and policymakers. The memo says, quote, victory will be achieved when average citizens understand uncertainties in climate science, end quote. If you've ever had to fight over the dinner table about whether climate change is real, you can thank the fossil fuel industry for using its millions of dollars to run one of the most successful PR campaigns of all time. And they're still up to the same tricks today. 
ExxonMobil, for example, publicly supports a federal carbon tax while contributing to fund climate science-denying groups. It's also contributed to the campaigns of climate science-denying politicians still in office in 2020. I keep coming back to 1988, the year that more people became aware of the science behind climate change, including the folks at giant fossil fuel companies. While they distracted us with lies and cute little foxes, the damage kept accumulating. More than half of all industrial carbon emissions have been released since 1988. So yeah, I'm mad, and I'm ready to talk about science. Specifically, how science can prove that fossil fuel companies are responsible for climate change. I'll be back in two weeks with part three. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Special thanks to Angela Saini. Our series on making polluters pay was brought to you by Katie Love. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come chat with us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks. Stay safe, everyone, and see you next time.